Part 1, Chapter 6 of Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Home Education Series, Volume 1, Home Education by Charlotte Mason. Part 1, Chapter 6, Conditions of Healthy Brain Activity, read by Mary Beth Shaw. Having just glanced at the wide region of forbidden ground, we are prepared to consider what it is, definitely and positively, that the mother owes to her child under the name of education. All mind labor means wear of brain. And first of all, the more educable powers of the child, his intelligence, his will, his moral feelings, have their seat in the brain. That is to say, as the eye is the organ of sight, so is the brain, or some part of it, the organ of thought and will, of love and worship. Authorities differ as to how far it is possible to localize the functions of the brain, but this at least seems pretty clear, that none of the functions of mind are performed without real activity in the mass of gray and white nervous matter named the brain. Now this is not a matter for the physiologist alone, but for every mother and father of a family, because that wonderful brain, by means of which we do our thinking, if it is to act healthily and in harmony with the healthful action of the members, should act only under such conditions of exercise, rest, and nutrition as secure health in every other part of the body. Exercise. Most of us have met with a few eccentric and a good many silly persons concerning whom the question forces itself. Were these people born with less brain power than others? Probably not, but if they were allowed to grow up without the daily habit of appropriate moral and mental work, if they were allowed to dawdle through youth without regular and sustained efforts of thought or will, the result would be the same, and the brain, which should have been invigorated by daily exercise, has become flabby and feeble as a healthy arm would be after being carried for years in a sling. The large, active brain is not content with entire idleness. It strikes out lines for itself and works fitfully, and the man or woman becomes eccentric because wholesome mental effort, like moral, must be carried on under the discipline of rules. A shrewd writer suggests that mental indolence may have been in some measure the cause of those pitiable attacks of derangement and depression from which poor Cowper suffered, the making of graceful verses when the maggot bit did not afford him the amount of mental labor necessary for his well-being, the outcome of which is, do not let the children pass a day without distinct efforts, intellectual, moral, volitional, let them brace themselves to understand, let them compel themselves to do and to bear, and let them do right at the sacrifice of ease and pleasure, and this for many higher reasons, but in the first and lowest place, that the mere physical organ of mind and will may grow vigorous with work. Rest. Just as important is it that the brain should have due rest, that is, should rest and work alternately, and here two considerations come into play. In the first place, when the brain is actively at work, it is treated as is every other organ of the body in the same circumstances. That is to say, a large additional supply of blood is attracted to the head for nourishment of the organ, which is spending its substance in hard work. Now there is not an indefinite quantity of what we will for the moment call surplus blood in the vessels. The supply is regulated on the principle that only one set of organs shall be excessively active at one time. Now the limbs, now the digestive organs, now the brain, and all the blood in the body that can be spared goes to the support of those organs which, for the time being, are in a state of labor. 
Rest after meals. The child has just had his dinner, the meal of the day, which most severely taxes his digestive organs. For as much as two or three hours after, much labor is going on in these organs, and the blood that can be spared from elsewhere is present to assist. Now send the child out for a long walk immediately after dinner. The blood goes to the laboring extremities, and the food is left half digested. Give the child a regular course of such dinners and walks, and he will grow up a dyspeptic. Set him to his books after a heavy meal, and the case is as bad. The blood which should have been assisting in the digestion of the meal goes to the laboring brain. It follows that the hours for lessons should be carefully chosen after periods of mental rest, sleep or play for instance, and when there is no excessive activity in any other part of the system. Thus the morning after breakfast, the digestion of which lighter meal is not a severe tax, is much the best time for lessons and every sort of mental work. If the whole afternoon cannot be spared for out-of-door recreation, that is the time for mechanical tasks, such as needlework, drawing, practicing. The children's wits are bright enough in the evening, but the drawback to evening work is that the brain, once exciting, is inclined to carry on its labors beyond bedtime, and dreams, wakefulness, and uneasy sleep attend the poor child who has been at work until the last minute. If the elder child must work in the evening, they should have at least one or two pleasant social hours before they go to bed. But indeed, we owe it to the children to abolish evening preparation. Change of Occupation Huxley says, quote, There is no satisfactory proof at present that the manifestation of any particular kind of mental faculty is especially allotted to or connected with the activity of any particular region of the cerebral hemispheres, end quote a dictum against the phrenologists, but coming to us on too high authority to be disputed. It is not possible to localize the faculties, to say you are cautious with this fraction of your brain and music-loving with another. But this much is certain, and is very important to the educator. The brain or some portion of the brain becomes exhausted when any given function has been exercised too long. The child has been doing sums for some time and is getting unaccountably stupid. Take away his slate and let him read history, and you will find his wits fresh again. Imagination, which has had no part in the sums, is called into play by the history lesson, and the child brings a lively, unexhausted power to his new work. School timetables are usually drawn up with a view to give the brain of the child variety of work, but the secret of the weariness children often show in the home schoolroom is that no such judicious change of lessons is contrived. Nourishment Again, the brain cannot do its work well unless it be abundantly and suitably nourished. Somebody has made a calculation of how many ounces of brain went to the production of such a work, say Paradise Lost, how many to such another, and so on. Without going into mental arithmetic of this nature, we may say with safety that every sort of intellectual activity wastes the tissues of the brain. A network of vessels supplies an enormous quantity of blood to the organ to make up for this waste of material and the vigor and health of the brain depend upon the quality and quantity of this blood supply. Certain causes affect the quality of the blood. Now, the quality of the blood is affected by three or four causes. In the first place, the blood is elaborated from the food. The more nutritious and easy of digestion the food, the more vital will be the properties of the blood. The food must be varied too, a mixed diet, because various ingredients are required to make up for the various waste in the tissues. The children are shocking spendthrifts. 
their endless goings and comings their restlessness their energy the very wagging of their tongues all mean expenditure of substance the loss is not appreciable but they lose something by every sudden sally out of doors or within no doubt the gain of power which results from exercise is more than compensation for the loss of substance but all the same this loss must be promptly made good and not only is the body of the child more active proportionably than that of the man the child's brain as compared with the man's is in a perpetual flutter of endeavor it is calculated that though the brain of a man weighs no more than a fortieth part of his body yet a fifth or a sixth of his whole complement of blood goes to nourish this delicate and intensely active organ but in the child's case a considerably larger proportion of the blood that is in him is spent on the sustenance of his brain and all the time with these excessive demands upon him the child has to grow not merely to make up for waste but to produce new substance in brain and body concerning meals what is the obvious conclusion that the child must be well fed half the people of low vitality we come across are the victims of low feeding during their childhood and that more often because their parents were not alive to their duty in this respect than because they were not in position to afford their children the diet necessary to their full physical and mental development regular meals at usually unbroken intervals dinner never more than five hours after breakfast luncheon unnecessary animal food once certainly in some lighter form twice a day are the suggestions of common sense followed out in most well-regulated households but it is not the food which is eaten but the food that is digested that nourishes body and brain and here so many considerations press that we can only glance at two or three of the most obvious everybody knows that children should not eat pastry or pork or fried meats or cheese or rich highly flavored food of any description that pepper mustard and vinegar sauces and spices should be forbidden with new bread rich cakes and jams like plum or gooseberry in which the leathery coat of the fruit is preserved that milk or milk and water and that not too warm or cocoa is the best drink for children and that they should be trained not to drink until they have finished eating that fresh fruit at breakfast is invaluable that as serving the same end oatmeal porridge and treacle and the fat of toasted bacon are valuable breakfast foods and that a glass of water also taken the last thing at night and the first thing in the morning is useful in promoting those regular habits on which much of the comfort of life depends talk at meals all this and much of the same kind it is needless to urge but again let me say it is digested food that nourishes the system and people are apt to forget how far mental and moral conditions affect the processes of digestion the fact is that the gastric juices which act as solvents to the viands are only secreted freely when the mind is in a cheerful and contented frame if the child dislike his dinner he swallows it but the digestion of that distasteful meal is a laborious much impeded process if the meal be eaten in silence unrelieved by pleasant chat the child loses much of the good of his dinner hence it is not a matter of pampering them at all but a matter of health of due nutrition that the children should enjoy their food and that their meals should be eaten in gladness though by the way joyful excitement is as mischievous as its opposite in destroying that even cheerful tenor of mind favorable to the processes of digestion no pain should be spared to make the hours of meeting round the family table the brightest hours of the day this is supposing that the children are allowed to sit at the same table with their parents and if it is possible to let them do so at every meal excepting a late dinner the advantage to the little people is incalculable 
Here is the parent's opportunity to train them in manners and in morals, to cement family love, and to accustom the children to habits, such as that of thorough mastication, for instance, as important on the score of health as on that of propriety. Variety in Meals But given pleasant surroundings and excellent food, and even then the requirements of these exacting little people are not fully met, plain as their food should be, they must have variety. A leg of mutton every Tuesday, the same cold on Wednesday and hashed on Thursday, may be very good food, but the child who has this diet week after week is inadequately nourished, simply because he is tired of it. The mother should contrive a rotation for her children that will last at least a fortnight without the same dinner recurring twice. Fish, especially if the children dine off it without meat to follow, is excellent as a change, the more so as it is rich in phosphorus, a valuable brain food. The children's puddings deserve a good deal of consideration because they do not commonly care for fatty foods but prefer to derive the warmth of their bodies from the starch and sugar of their puddings. But give them variety. Do not let it be everlasting tapioca. Even for tea and breakfast, the wise mother does not say, I always give my children so-and-so. They should not have anything always. Every meal should have some little surprise. But is this the way to make them think over much of what they shall eat and drink? On the contrary, it is the underfed children who are greedy and unfit to be trusted with any unusual delicacy. Air is important as food. The quality of the blood depends almost as much on the air we breathe as on the food we eat. In the course of every two or three minutes, all the blood in the body passes through the endless ramifications of the lungs, for no other purpose than that, during the instant of its passage, it should be acted upon by the oxygen contained in the air, which is drawn into the lungs in the act of breathing. But what can happen to the blood in the course of an exposure of so short duration? Just this. The whole character, the very color of the blood is changed. It enters the lungs spoiled, no longer capable of sustaining life. It leaves them a pure and vital fluid. Now observe that the blood is only fully oxygenated when the air contains its full proportion of oxygen, and every breathing and every burning object withdraws some oxygen from the atmosphere. Hence the importance of giving the children daily airings and abundant exercise of limb and lung in unvitiated, unimpoverished air. The children walk every day. The children walk every day. They are never out less than an hour when the weather is suitable. That is better than nothing. So is this. An East London school mistress noticed the pale looks of one of her best girls. Have you had any dinner, Nellie? Yes, with hesitation. What have you had? Mother gave Jessie and me a half penny to buy our dinners, and we bought a hayperth of aniseed drops. They go further than bread with an appeal in her eyes against possible censure for extravagance. Children do not develop at their best upon aniseed drops for dinner, nor upon an hour's constitutional daily. Possibly science will bring home to us more and more the fact that animal life, pent under cover, is supported under artificial conditions, just as is plant life in a glass house. Here is where most continental nations have the advantage over us. They keep up the habit of out-of-door life. And as a consequence, the average Frenchman, German, Italian, Bulgarian is more joyous, more simple, and more hardy than the average Englishman. Climate? Did not Charles II, and he knew, declare for the climate of England because you could be abroad, quote, more hours in the day and more days in the year in England than any other country, end quote. We lose sight of the fact that we are not like that historical personage who lived upon nothing but victuals and drink. You can't live upon air. 
we say to the invalid who can't eat. No, we cannot live upon air, but if we must choose among the three sustainers of life, air will support us the longest. We know all about it. We are deadly weary of the subject. Let but the tail of your eye catch oxygenation on a page, and the well-trained organ skips that paragraph of its own accord. No need to tell Macaulay's schoolboy or anybody else how the blood of the body is brought to the lungs, and there spread about in a huge extent of innumerable pipes that it may be exposed momentarily to the oxygen in the air, how the air is made to blow upon the blood, so spread out in readiness by the bellows-like action of breathing, how the air penetrates the very thin walls of the pipes, and then behold a magical or chemical transmutation. The worthless sewage of the system becomes on the instant the rich vivifying fluid whose function it is to build up the tissues of muscle and nerve. And the Prospero that wears the cloak? Oxygen, his name, and the marvel that he effects within us some fifteen times in the course of a minute is possibly without parallel in the whole array of marvels which we taught up with easy familiarity, setting down life and carrying a cipher. Oxygen has its limitations. We know all about it. What we forget, perhaps, is that even oxygen has its limitations. Nothing can act but where it is, and waste attends work. Hold true for this vital gas as for other matters. Fire and lamp and breathing beings are all consumers of the oxygen which sustains them. What follows? Why that this element, which is present in the ratio of 23 parts to the hundred in pure air, is subject to an enormous drain within the four walls of a house, where the air is more or less stationary. I am not speaking just now of the vitiation of the air, only of the drain upon its life-sustaining element. Think again of the heavy drain upon the oxygen which must support the multitudinous fires and many breathing beings congregated in the large town. What follows is a strictly vital question. Man can enjoy the full measure of vigorous, joyous existence possible to him only when his blood is fully aerated. And this takes place when the air he inhales contains its full complement of oxygen. Is it too much to say that vitality is reduced, other things being equal, in proportion as persons are house-dwellers rather than open-air dwellers? The impoverished air sustains life at a low and feeble level. Wherefore, in the great towns, stature dwindles, the chest contracts, men hardly live to see their children's children. True, we must needs have houses for shelter from the weather by day and for rest at night. But in proportion as we cease to make our houses comfortable, as we regard them merely as necessary shelters when we cannot be out of doors, shall we enjoy to the full the vigorous vitality possible to us. Unchanged Air Parents of pale-faced town children think of these things. The gutter children who feed on the pickings of the street are better off and healthier looking in this one respect than your cherished darlings, because they have more of the first essential of life, air. There is some circulation of air even in the slums of the city, and the child who spends its days in the streets is better supplied with oxygen than he who spends most of his hours in the unchanged air of a spacious apartment. But it is not the air of the streets the children want. It is the delicious life-giving air of the country. The outlay of the children in living is enormously in excess of the outlay of the adult. The endless activity of the child, while it develops muscle, is kept up at the expense of very great waste of tissue. It is the blood which carries material for the reparation of this loss. The child must grow, every part of him, and it is the blood which brings material for the building up of new tissues. Again, we know that the brain is, out of all proportion to its size, the great consumer of the blood supply. But the brain of the child, what with its eager activity, what with its twofold growth, is insatiable in its demands. I feed Alice on beef tea. 
I feed Alice on beef tea, cod liver oil, and all sorts of nourishing things, but it's very disheartening the child doesn't gain flesh. It is probable that Alice breathes for 22 of the 24 hours the impoverished and more or less vitiated air pent within the four walls of a house. The child is practically starving, for the food she eats is very imperfectly and inadequately converted into the aerated blood that feeds the tissues of the body. And if she is suffering from bodily inanition, what about the eager, active, curious, hungering mind of the little girl? Oh, she has her lessons regularly, every day. Probably, but lessons which deal with words, only the signs of things, are not what the child wants. There is no knowledge so appropriate to the early years of a child as that of the name and look and behavior in situ of every natural object he can get at. He hath so done his marvelous works that they ought to be had in remembrance. Three years she grew in sun and shower, then nature said a lovelier flower on earth was never sown. This child I to myself will take, she shall be mine, and I will make a lady of my own. She shall be sportive as the fawn, that wild with glee across the lawn, or up the mountain springs, and hers shall be the breathing balm, and hers the silence and the calm of mute insensate things. The stars of midnight shall be dear to her, and she shall lean her ear in many a secret place, where rivulets dance their wayward round, and beauty born of murmuring sound shall pass into her face. Indoor Airings About out-of-door airings, we shall have occasion to speak more fully, but indoor airings are truly as important, because if the tissues be nourished upon impure blood for all the hours the child spends in the house, the mischief will not be mended in the shorter intervals spent out of doors. Put two or three breathing bodies, as well as fire and gas, into a room, and it is incredible how soon the air becomes vitiated unless it be constantly renewed, that is, unless the room be well ventilated. We know what it is to come in out of the fresh air and complain that a room feels stuffy, but sit in the room a few minutes and you get accustomed to its stuffiness. The senses are no longer a safe guide. Ventilation. Therefore, regular provision must be made for the ventilation of rooms, regardless of the feelings of their inmates. At least an inch of window open at the top, day and night, renders a room tolerably safe, because it allows of the escape of the vitiated air, which, being light, ascends, leaving room for the influx of colder, fresher air, by cracks and crannies indoors and floors. An open chimney is a useful, though not a sufficient, ventilator. It is needless to say that the stopping up of chimneys in sleeping rooms is suicidal. It is particularly important to accustom children to sleep with an inch or two or more of open window all through the year, as much more as you like in the summer. Night Air Wholesome There is a popular notion that night air is unwholesome, but if you reflect that wholesome air is that which contains its full complement of oxygen, and no more than its very small complement of carbonic acid gas, and that all burning objects, fire, furnace, gas lamp, give forth carbonic acid gas and consume oxygen, you will see that night air is, in ordinary circumstances, more wholesome than day air, simply because there is a less exhaustive drain upon its vital gas. When the children are out of a room which they commonly occupy, day nursery or breakfast room, then is the opportunity to air it thoroughly by throwing windows and doors wide open and producing a thorough draft. Sunshine But it is not only air and pure air the children must have if their blood is to be of the finest quality as the advertisements have it. 
quite healthy blood is exceedingly rich in minute red disc-like bodies known as red corpuscles which in favorable circumstances are produced freely in the blood itself now it is observed that people who live much in the sunshine are of a ruddy countenance that is a great many of these red corpuscles are present in their blood while the poor souls who live in cellars and sunless alleys have skins the color of whitey brown paper therefore it is concluded that light and sunshine are favorable to the production of red corpuscles in the blood and therefore to this next therefore is but a step for the mother the children's room should be on the sunny side of the house with the south aspect if possible indeed the whole house should be kept light and bright for their sakes trees and outbuildings that obstruct the sunshine and make the children's rooms dull should be removed without hesitation free perspiration another point must be attended to in order to secure that the brain be nourished by healthy blood the blood receives and gets rid of the waste of the tissues and one of the most important agents by means of which it does this necessary scavenger's work is the skin millions of invisible pores perforate the skin each the mouth of a minute many-folded tube and each such pore is employed without a moment's cessation while the body is in health in discharging perspiration that is the waste of the tissues upon the skin insensible perspiration when the discharge is excessive we are aware of moisture upon the skin but aware of it or not the discharge is always going on and what is more if it be checked or if a considerable portion of the skin be glazed so that it becomes impervious death will result this is why people die in consequence of scalds or burns which injure a large surface of the skin although they do not touch any vital organ multitudes of minute tubes which should carry off injurious matters from the blood are closed and though the remaining surface of the skin and other excretory organs take extra work upon them it is impossible to make good the loss of what may be called efficient drainage over a considerable area therefore if the brain is to be duly nourished it is important to keep the whole surface of the skin in a condition to throw off freely the excretions of the blood daily bath and porous garments two considerations follow of the first the necessity for the daily bath followed by vigorous rubbing of the skin it is needless to say a word here but possibly it is not so well understood that children should be clothed throughout in porous garments which admit of the instant passing off of the exhalations of the skin why did delicate women faint or at any rate feel faint when it was the custom to go to church in seal-skin coats why do people who sleep under down or even under silk or cotton quilts frequently rise unrefreshed from the one cause their coverings have impeded the passage of the insensible perspiration and have so hindered the skin in its function of relieving the blood of impurities it is surprising what a constant loss of vitality many people experience from no other cause than the unsuitable character of their clothing the children cannot be better dressed throughout than in loosely woven woolen garments flannels and serges of varying thicknesses for summer and winter wear woolens have other advantages over cotton and linen materials besides that of being porous wool is a bad conductor and therefore does not allow of the too free escape of the animal heat and it is absorbent and therefore relieves the skin of the clammy sensation which follows sensible perspiration we should be the better for it if we could make up our minds to sleep in wool discarding linen or cotton in favor of sheets made of some lightly woven woolen material we might say much on this one question the due nutrition of the brain upon which the very possibility of healthy education depends but something will have been effected if the reason why of only two or three practical rules of health is made so plain that they cannot be evaded without a sense of law-breaking i fear the reader may be inclined to think that i am inviting his attention for the most part to a few physiological matters 
the lowest round of the educational ladder. The lowest round it may be, but yet it is the lowest round, the necessary step to all the rest. For it is not too much to say that, in our present state of being, intellectual, moral, even spiritual life and progress depend greatly upon physical conditions. That is to say, not that he who has a fine physique is necessarily a good and clever man, but that the good and clever man requires much animal substance to make up for the expenditure of tissue brought about in the exercise of his virtue and his intellect. For example, is it easier to be amiable, kindly, candid, with or without a headache or an attack of neuralgia? End of part one, chapter six.